Good morning. morning. Well, I'm glad you're all here this morning. A couple of announcements. As you know, June 19, the Aging Brain Proven Steps to Prevent Dementia and Sharpen Your Mind comes out from Baker Books, and they've just made arrangements with um, Christian Audio that uh, if anybody pre-orders the book, they'll be able to get a free audio version of The God-Shaped Heart. So, and that's just become available. So if you've already pre-ordered the, the, uh, the, the book, just watch. There should be in the next, it's not quite ready to make that linkage. They're working on the back end of it. I'm giving the announcement ahead of time. But the next two weeks, I'll, I'll make an announcement how to do it. But you'll be able to go online and you'll be able to register to get a free copy of the audio version of The God-Shaped Heart if you do the pre-order on The Aging Brain. Alrighty, so we're doing lesson number two in the quarterly preparation for the end time. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings you provided us and the opportunity to study. And as we prayer, uh, uh, prepare, Lord, and study, we really are. All that we're doing is because we want to be with you. We want to prepare ourselves and prepare the world to meet you. And so we ask that you'll give us wisdom as we study in your holy name. Amen. And the lesson title for this week is Daniel and the End Time. Daniel and the End Time. And the first paragraph reads... The Lord had great plans for ancient Israel. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. This holy nation, this kingdom of priests, was to be his witness to the world that Yahweh was the only God. Unfortunately, the nation didn't live up to the holy calling that God had given it. Eventually, its people even went into the captivity in Babylon. So, what about today? Does this paragraph I just read, this history of Israel that I just read, have any application to us today? What's the application? Well, it should still be our mission to present God to the world. Okay, so they were to be a kingdom of priests. Are we to be a kingdom of priests? So we read in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God and to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. There's a lot of symbols in here. Let's just decode the symbols fairly quickly. Who's the living stone in which the next verse identifies as the cornerstone upon which the temple is built? Right. Okay. Christ is the chief cornerstone, who's the living stone, and that's exactly right. Who are the who are the other living stones? Us. Okay, us, that's right. Who accept the chief cornerstone? Those are the Christians. Those who accept Jesus Christ become living stones. What is the spiritual house that we're being built into called? Temple. A temple. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who and who are the holy priesthood? Those who have Christ like character. That would be all those who have accepted Christ. And then what are spiritual sacrifices? Sacrifices of self-righteousness, self-centeredness, pride, greed, lust, all your defects of character that you sacrifice and have crucified, I'm crucified with Christ, Okay, our very selfish selves, and thus we receive a new heart and a right spirit as we surrender the old. This is primarily an internal regeneration and renewal. Now, ancient Israel was to be a nation of priests to witness to the world for what purpose? What was the purpose for them to do this? To reveal God. To reveal God. And they were to reveal God for what purpose? There was a purpose in doing it. This is not a trick question. Character transformation of everyone. To bring the whole world into healing and freedom from sin. That was their purpose, right? Yeah. What about Christianity today? What is our purpose to be, quote, a priesthood of believers. What is the purpose there? The same thing. The same thing. To reveal God for the purpose of bringing a whole world to a knowledge of God for the recreation of Christ-like character within and eternal life. So, how did ancient Israel do? And what happened to ancient Israel? They went into... Captivity. Babylonian captivity. Does ancient Israel's Babylonian captivity have any correlation an application to Christianity today. In other words, as Christianity today, are we in Babylonian captivity? By choice, though. 
Well, let's see if we can, again, let's see if we can put this together. There's a message of, of, uh, of God, for Jesus Christ, to God's people at the end of time. It's called the book of Revelation, the message of Jesus Christ to the people at the end of time. And in the middle of that book, Revelation chapter 14, there's a message from three angels. And the first angel says, this is from the remedy, be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, the spring of water, all of which operate on his law of love. This is the first angel. But then the second angel, this is from the NIV, second angel fallen said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great which made all the nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. And then from Revelation 18 we read, verses 2 through 4, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home of demons and a haunt of every evil spirit, a haunt of every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you share not in her sins. Who, who are the people that come out of Babylon? Spiritual Israel. My people. So who's, and, and this, this is a message from Jesus. So these are the Christians. And where are the Christians being called out of? Babylon. So are we, as Christians, captive in Babylon? Hmm. The Jews went into captivity in Babylon for what reason? What was the reason they went into captivity? Distrust. Distrust? Because they didn't obey God. Because I mean, they didn't obey God? God removed well, the hedge of protection. Be, he removed the hedge of protection because they continued to worship false gods. They turned their hearts and devotion away from him towards pagan deities over and over again. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, but that's, still, that's not obeying God, isn't it? Yes, that's right, but, but specifically. Okay. Yeah. And the believers, the priesthood believers at the end time, the Christians are called to leave Babylon. Would this imply that the church has also become a captive of pagan systems of belief? Babylon. So how have we become a captive of Babylon? Let's do a little history lesson. The chief god of ancient Babylon, the one that was the central god in Babylon when the time the children of Israel were taken captive was Marduk. Now this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica about Marduk. Originally, he seemed to have been a god of thunderstorms. A poem known as Unuma Elish, and dating from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, relates Marduk's rise to such preeminence that he was the god of 50 names, each one that of a deity or divine attribute. After conquering the monster of primeval chaos, he became lord of the gods of, he of, gods of heaven and earth. All nature, including humanity, owed its existence to him. The destiny of kingdoms uh, and subjects was in his hands. Marduk's star was Jupiter. And his sacred animals were horses, dogs, and especially the so-called dragon with its forked tongue. Representations, all of which adorn his city walls. On the oldest monuments, Marduk is represented holding a triangular spade or hoe, interpreted as an emblem of fertility and vegetation. He is also pictured walking or in his war chariot. Typically, his tunic is adorned with stars and his hand is a scepter and he carries a bow, spear, net, or thunderbolt. Kings of Assyria and Persia also honored Marduk in, in inscriptions and, re, and rebuilt many of their temples. Marduk was later known as Baal a name derived from the Semitic word for Baal. Baal had all the attributes of Marduk, and his status and cult were much the same. Hmm. So the attributes of Marduk, creator and supreme god, he was the god of weather, he had a dragon, he was dragon-like with a forked tongue, often symbolic of having two sides, two faces, telling two stories, not being consistent, being inconsistent. Hmm. There's nothing in Christianity taught today of a God with two faces, is there? <laughs> God with two characters, a God with two sides, a, a loving, gracious God who would die for you, and a stern, mean God who will burn you in hell if you don't do something to pay off his anger. 
Interesting. Dragon-like, isn't it? He was the god of fertility. And Marduk became known as Baal. And we all know who Baal was, right? The son of El, uh, the god of weather, the god of lightning, the god of fertility. The Baal uh, fought the great serpent Leviathan, battled against the god of death, Mote. In his battle with Mote, Baal dies and rises again. Do you see any parallels here? The problem with uh, all this worship, though, Marduk worship, Baal worship, is that all of these gods required appeasement. They required the worshiper bring sacrifices in order to earn merit or achieve the blessing. So the god would not punish because of their wickedness. They had to do something to the god to influence him. This is Marduk worship. This is Baal worship. And of course, Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, the god of thunder. Jupiter, remember who was the star of Marduk? Jupiter. And he became Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all those who worship a god that, like Baal, requires appeasement, payment, and propitiation with a human sacrifice in order not to kill you. And this is what essentially all Christianity teaches, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You think I'm wrong about that? No, not anymore. Now I can show you across the landscape, including within the 27 Fundamental Beliefs book. And it is taught consistently that if you don't get the blood payment of Jesus Christ applied to your record book in heaven, that at the judgment God will use his power to torture you as many days as you deserve before he kills you. This is Marduk and Baal worship. This is why it was prophesied through Malachi that before the second coming of Christ, the prophet Elijah must come again to confront the Baal worship going on on planet Earth. This is why all the nations are drunk with the wine of the fornication. The wine of the fornication is metaphor. It's not physical wine. It's wine of fornication. What's fornication? It's when you give your heart to someone it shouldn't be given to. It's, given, it's becoming drunk and intoxicated on the ideas and distortions that God is like Baal. God is like Marduk. And how do we teach God is like Baal and God is like Marduk? How do we do that? And the whole world is drunk on this. Even those who don't believe in God. Why? Because the entire movement to reject God is a reaction to the view that God is like Marduk. That God, that God says, I love you. But if you don't love me, I will torture you for all eternity. And reasonable people go, that's nonsense. That's irrational. That makes no sense. And so millions have rejected the idea of God, but that's still part of the intoxication of this lie. They're reacting to it. And just like Israel went into captivity to Babylon, so too Christianity today is captive of Babylon. Captive in our minds. Minds that are held captive by the Marduk, the Baal, the Satan himself, when the lie is taught that God's law functions like human law, unless God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering, unless he's paid by the blood of a human sacrifice. And if you just listen to Christian radio, turn your radio on for maybe one day, listen to some of these Christian stations, and you will hear this over and over again. One hour. But God is calling for a people at the end of time who are to be Elijah's. Who just like Elijah stood up to Baal worship and said, if God is like this, worship him. But if God is like this, worship him. We are to give a clear and distinct view that God is not like Baal. God is not like Marduk. God is like Jesus revealed him to be. And thus, the second angel's message from the remedy reads... Don't trust Babylon the Great, a symbolic description of religions that misrepresent God as it has fallen into the lies about God and intoxicates the world with its pagan views of God, maddening the people with its adulterous ideas that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. Any questions? Anybody have like, well, wait a minute, though. Hold on. Any hold on questions? Yes. The end of Job. What about the end of Job? When God talks to Job's friends, and he said, you haven't said what's right about me. Right. And then he tells them they have to go sacrifice, or else he says his wrath is kindled against them, and if they need to go sacrifice and ask their friend to pray for them, or else God will deal with them. Okay. So what do you understand that to mean? I don't know. I'm struggling with it. <laughs> so we are to present ourselves, as we read out of Peter, let me get that text here. We read it just a moment ago. You have come to the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
So what was it that they, God, you think, was telling them to sacrifice? This is Hosea 6.6. 6. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. So when they sent to, sent to do the animal sacrifices, we have to understand what is the purpose of the animal sacrifices. Is there any healing, restoration of character in sacrificing an animal? No. This is the confusion. So why is he telling them at the end of the book of Job to go do animal sacrifices? He's really telling them to sac, he's really telling them, you have not said of me what is right, but Job has. You need to go and have a spiritual sacrifice. You need to go die to your arrogance, die to your presumptions, die to your self-centeredness, die to your self-righteousness because you're accusing Job of being sinful because these bad things have happened to him. You're telling him you must have done some horrible thing. God is punishing you. You've misrepresented me and you've felt good about yourself because you have had all these blessings. You think that you're in somehow good behavior and somehow it's based on you. You need to go actually die to self and humble yourself and come to understand reality better. That's what he was telling them. Why, why animal sacrifices at all? A couple of reasons. One, symbolically what they represent, but more importantly, how many here have a pet? Okay, now this was in this culture, these were agrarian culture. They, they often were shepherds. They, they would name their flock. They would protect their flock from wolves and lions and so forth, put themselves in harm's way. Now, after having done this, you, you birthed the little baby lamb. You gave it a name. You watched it grow up. And now you've committed a sin. And you've got to put your hands on its head, look in its eye, and you cut its throat as it's looking up to you. How's that going to, how's that going to impact you? Is it going to make you feel good or does it make you sick? That's what God is trying to primarily communicate. Sin is sickening. It's to get you to be revolted by it. It's to have a gut reaction so that you never want to go through that experience again. That's the primary purpose of the sacrifices. Well, I thought it kind of correlated with the beginning of the chapter where it talked about the righteousness of Job, and one of the things he did periodically was sacrifice for his children regularly after they'd had a feast, just in case they cursed God in their hearts. <laughs> yeah, and those sacrifices were... And you understand those sacrifices were worthless. They had no merit at all. Completely worthless. Had no benefit for the kids. Didn't do anything to God. They were for, they were for Job. Job sacrificed those sacrifices for Job. It made Job feel better. Do, does anybody actually think that, that a parent taking an animal and killing it will cause God to be more gracious to their child? No, it had no bearing on God at all. It had no impact on him. Do you think that your kid lives somewhere off in some foreign land and wild living? If you go out periodically and sacrifice an animal, that somehow that sacrificing the animal will metaphorically, mystically somehow impact your kid, and they're going to wake up, oh, my, I, feel, I think I'll be more righteous today. It had no bearing on the kid. It had no bearing on God. It had a bearing on Job. Job felt that this was something he could do. As many parents that I deal with with kids that are straying, they so much want to do something. And God let him do it. It was not harmful to do it. But it also didn't actually change God or change the kids. Okay, over here. Yes. I don't know exactly how to word this, but if we as an Adventist church are continuing to present the wrong message to the world by telling them that God is the God that's going to destroy people at the end, how could we be the remnant church? So you need to look very much 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, this is the, this, the, it tells us in Scripture that all these things were recorded for our education and as a lesson to us, right? That's what it tells us in Corinthians, that all that history there of the Old Testament church, the nation of Israel, is a lesson to us. Now, the, the actual chosen people, the, the people of God 2,000 years ago were the nation of Israel, okay? And if you followed the leadership of the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, would you be walking the path of eternal life or the path of eternal condemnation? If you followed the leader? The leadership of the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Yeah. If you followed them 2,000 years ago, would you be following the path of life? Nope. So the, the, the organization had become so distorted with misunderstanding about what God really wanted that when God stood among them, they hated him and they killed him and they rejected him. However... This is, you have to put all the pieces together. Don't look at one data point. Many people struggle because they, they can't integrate multiple data points. Integrate as many as you can. However, even though what I just said is true, when Jesus is talking at the woman at the well, and she says, should we worship here? Should we worship there? Jesus said, salvation is of the 
Jews. So even though the system was corrupt, even though the system, and if you value uh, Ellen White's writing, she said it was so corrupt, the whole system had to be swept away. Had to be done away with. Had to be torn down and done because it was so corrupt. That system couldn't be used anymore. The, the symbolic system. But yet, even though that's true, salvation is the Jews for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus, of course, the most important reason. <laughs> that's one. But not just that. After Jesus' ascension, where did all of the evangelists come from? Essentially, primarily, all the evangelists came from the Jewish nation. So are we saved denominationally? If we join the right organization, now we have salvation. Or are we saved because of some experience with our relationship with Jesus Christ that changes and transforms us? My view is that the final end-time message are going to come from people, many of whom, but not necessarily exclusively, many of whom have had a, uh, a upbringing and education in the Adventist system. But the organization, I don't hold my breath that this organization is going to stand up organizationally and give the message. I see them doing very much like what the organization did 2,000 years ago. They're into institutional protection. And if you remember 2,000 years ago, the chief leader, the president of the General Conference, said, it's better for one man to die than the nation. Let's protect our nation and not do the right thing. And you will find that there's threats that the organizational leaders are perceiving, oh, this could undermine our organization. We could lose this property. We could lose this thing. And so they're making decisions of an organizational protection rather than decisions that are necessarily in harmony with the gospel and the final message. However, that doesn't mean that this church hasn't been blessed with a message for the end time. Can you accept both at the same time? Okay, yes. Our church was developed around the prophetic... Um, realization, if you will, of Miller and, and everybody that the great judgment was was coming. It was the, and then became for the Adventist Church. It became the October twenty two disappointment. Even as the the church was being developed, then most people know that Ellen White, for instance, came out of the Methodist Church. They were saying to the people who were developing the Adventist Church, "Why can't you just preach God is love?" Why can't you just talk about God as love? Why do you have to talk about this judgment? Why do you have to talk about these? Who said this? Back in the day. This is historical. Well, I'd like to get some of those references because I actually see it the opposite. If you actually look at the evangelistic uh, tools used by the Seventh-day Adventist Church at the time, the first posters that they made that they went out had the big giant Ten Commandments in the center of it, and they were preaching the law. After 1888, Ellen White had them get rid of that, and she redid the poster, and she put the cross at the center. And she said, our messages have been the law, the law, the law, and it's as dry as the hills of Gilboa. We need to put the love of Christ and the cross center in our messages. And so there was a shift. So I, I, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to necessarily embrace this idea that we should not be preaching the love of Christ, but the love of Christ, when it's preached in its truth, will actually be design law, God's preparation to meet him, uh, and moving away from this imperial punishing God construct. Well, I, I find, you know, a continuing problem in our church today simply because, for instance, in the wake of Billy Graham's passing, you know, we we have to give deference, it seems, or we have to you know, praise the fact that he preached the gospel so powerfully. And yet, you know, it was boiled down to this simple fact that God is love and that all you have to do is repent. And to an extent, it's it's that infection of the whole... What would you add to it? What do you have to do besides come to a point that God is love, repent, and open your heart to him? What would you add to it besides that? I would add... The influence of the Holy Spirit. To make that's 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 the repentance. We can't repent without the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's assumed in the process of repentance. We can't do it without it. So of course, the Holy Spirit. What else? There has to be a balance. Uh, but what what are we balancing with? There has to be a balance in practical life. And and what are what are our what does repentance mean? See, I think I think you're struggling to say this. That they were, that, that this message that many heard from Billy Graham, and I'm not going to say Billy Graham said this message, but many Christians hear the message, repentance is a legal process of confessing. It's a confession and asking for legal pardon. That is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is a transformation of the inner person where we die to self and we have a new motive. The law is written on the heart and mind. And thus, you cannot have repentance without a change in the way you live. They're hand in hand. 
They go hand in hand. So again, if we understand what biblical repentance is, it's recognizing God as love. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, Romans 3, 4. And then when we repent, we open the heart. He pours his love in. We're transformed in their man with the indwelling of the spirit and we live a different life. So what do we add to that? Growth, growth. Okay. We add growth and knowledge and moving forward and insight and wisdom and, and truth and assimilation. That's part of the growing process afterwards, but it is really, but I think what you're saying is that's not really what a lot of people heard. They heard you're in legal trouble and all you have to do is accept the legal payment of Jesus, claim that as repentance and have it applied to the record books. You're declared to be righteous. You don't live, you don't change, you're not reformed because it's a legal thing happening in books somewhere. And I think maybe you're protesting that view of it and you are right to do so. Well, in a very simplistic way, if you, if you uh, look at repentance as a declaration process and then you expect that legal payment to cover you, yes, you're exactly right. That's the line of thinking that I'm following. And But there has to be more than that declaration. There ha- And it can't be well, I, I, a declaration. It has to be something that means something in your heart. You know, this class takes the position that the whole legal view is the infection. It's Marduk worship. It's Baal worship. This is the infection that we as as an end-time people or to tell people to get free of. This has never been uh, an authoritarian God seeking some vengeance or punishment on sinners and Jesus dying to pay him off so that he won't actually hurt us. That's Marduk worship. That's Baal worship. That's pagan worship. That's not biblical. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us some, but gave him up. How in along with him give us all things. God, uh, it was, Jesus was fulfilling the purposes of the Father in everything he did. Uh, I, I, myself, I do nothing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so there's a complete unity and harmony amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their interventions to do away with sin in sinners, not to do away with sinners. <laughs> to do away with sin in sinners so that we become the righteousness of God. So in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, it says that um, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, which is cheated by in Christian theology, even in, in within many uh, Adventist systems, but it's, it's Christian-wide. Penal substitution theology doesn't teach that. Penal substitution theology teaches that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. It's a lie. It's a fraud. It cheats people. We are to become the righteousness of God. We actually get new motives, new heart, new desires. We actually get new wisdom, new insight. We get new longings. The old is gone. The new has come. But if you don't expect that, if you have this other thing, then what happens is, well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Uh, his blood has been paid to my account. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I can live any way I want. It doesn't matter. Or, if you want the Adventist version, I accepted the blood payment. As long as I remember every sin I've ever committed and ask Jesus to pay and it goes to the record book in heaven and all the sins are erased out of the books in heaven, I'm still just as wicked and awful on the inside, but it doesn't matter because the books don't show it. <laughs> it's all fraudulent. Amen. It cheats people. Yes. You know, the, con- the confession <laughs> process of a sinner isn't... God already knows what our sins are. The confession doesn't help him. It helps us. That's right. That's right. But but under the legal model, it's necessary in the legal model because, again, this is pagan worship. This is Baal worship. This is Babylon worship. Why? Because what we've done is we've taken a human legal justice system and we've taught that God runs his universe like sinful governments run the human governments. That's what we've taught. All right, let's go on to Sunday's lesson. Sunday, uh, let's see, the... Memory at the top, it says, He who is faithful in what is the least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. How do we apply that? I'll let you read the paragraph. The paragraph gives some implications. But how do we apply that? What does it mean? Let's see if, let's see if it means this. Faithful in least, or, or, or faithful in, in least. It doesn't, because lesson talks about compromising on little things. Compromise on little things or compromise on big things. So does it mean if you compromise a little and wear a little makeup, you'll eventually become adult, an adulteress? Compromised and worn a little makeup. Is that what it means? It, 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 does it mean that if you compromise as a lady and wear pants, you'll eventually become a lesbian? <laughs> Is that what it means? It's a slippery slope, Dan. Uh, 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 you're laughing, but I'm telling you, there are people who think this way. Um, it, it doesn't mean if you're a Christian and you drink a glass of wine or have a sip of champagne at New Year's, you're going to become an alcoholic. It doesn't mean that. 
Does it mean if you drink coffee or eat meat or eat cheese that you're going to betray Jesus at the second coming? A lot of people link this kind of stuff. How about this? How about this? If you're given 50 cents more than your correct change and you knowingly keep it. Obviously, if we don't know about it, it doesn't matter. But you give it, and you know it's 50. Oh, 50 extra cents. Good. Does, does that mean something? How about you spread rumors about people? Does that mean something? How about you flirt with people, not your spouse? How about you teach that God is required to use his power to inflict punishment on unrepentant sinners? Does that mean something? Now, now do you see the difference between the first list and the second list? The first list, let me tell the difference. The first list is all external behavior. The things that the rule keepers like to keep track of. The external Man looks on the outward appearance, the behaviors. The Lord looks on the... And the second list is a list of heart motive. So when you talk about this little things and big things, it's really not primarily the external behavior. It's primarily the motive of the heart. It seems to me that the issue is whether you're knowingly doing something that you know is harmful. You know, like If you know that drinking alcohol will fuzz your brain and disrupt your communication with God, but then you choose to do it, that would be more like rebellion against God. Does the circumstance matter? Um, if you're dying and you need uh, some anesthetic, then... <laughs> right, no, this is his point. This is a good point. When you said, if you know that it's harmful, to know whether something's harmful, you have to understand the situation, the circumstance, the impact of the decision, the consequences, uh, and so forth. You can't simply make up a rule that you can apply in all circumstances. Yeah. And love, love doesn't have a rule that you can apply in all circumstances. Parents, if you love your children... Do you treat them all exactly the same? And if you think you do, parents, let me just ask you, if you had one child with leukemia, would you treat him differently or her differently than the children without leukemia? Why? But you be more restrictive with them. Maybe when they're under chemotherapy and their immune system is depressed, maybe they don't get to go out and play with the other kids. You keep them at home more. Maybe they have to wear masks when they go out in public. Why do you put so much restrictions on them? Because you are loving them less? That's just a simple example. My point is, you can't make cookie-cutter rules to apply principles. People want to do that. They want to feel safe. As long as I follow the rules, do, 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 ah, I, I'm fine. And rule keepers almost always cause injury. Amen. Almost always cause injury. We'll get to some more of that in just a moment. So, third paragraph, which is about Daniel and his three friends refusing to eat the king's meats and drink the king's wines. It says, although the text directly does not link what they ate to their being ten times better, in wisdom and understanding than all others, the link is clearly there. Hmm. (laughs) So, is the link clearly there? Was this issue for Daniel and the three primarily about health laws? Primarily. No, this is about worship. This is about giving honor to God. This was about ensuring that no honor was given to Marduk, the Babylonian god. You see, all the foods that they were initially offered were first blessed by Marduk. And thus, if Daniel and his friends ate those foods and had more wisdom and more health and greater benefit, all of that would have been attributed to Marduk blessing them. And Daniel and the free friends wanted to make a statement that no, our wisdom, our health, our abilities don't come from Marduk, they come from Yahweh. And so they refused to eat those foods so that no uh, no credit could be given to the false god. That's what it was primarily about. It has very little to do with the laws of health. It has a lot to do with worship, loyalty, honor, intention to be a good representative of God. Now, do you think, does anybody in this room think that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prior to their Babylonian captivity, while they were still free citizens in Israel, or Judah, were vegetarians? Not if they were a true Jew. Not if they were participating in Passover. They were required to slaughter the lamb and eat the lamb. And the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. Every year, at least, they would have that meal. These were not vegetarians, folks. And this to take the scripture and promote vegetarianism from this view is the kind of illogical, irrational 
approach to Scripture that discredits a good person. Now, does that mean that vegetarianism is unhealthy? Of course not. It's just they're not linked here. They're trying to link something that's not linked, and it undermines the, the credibility of the position. So vegetarianism is very healthy, and the science all shows that. What do you think the most important reason, given the fact that I've just described what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not eat of the king's meats, would not eat of the meats given to Marduk, what do you think the most important reason from Daniel's perspective was that they were able to be so much better? Do you think the most important reason was physiological? They just had better physical health. Or is there another reason that might even been more important than that, as important as physical health is? How about their faithfulness caused them to have a clear conscience? Does a clear conscience have any impact on your ability to to present God well? Not only that, neurobiologically, we now know in your brain, your conscience is, is the part of your brain above the orbit of your eye. If you're doing something wrong, this part of your brain above the orbit of your eye will begin to become active and will, and will cause you to feel anxious and stressed. But guess what happens the way your brain is wired? When your conscience is active, guess what part it turns off? It shuts down. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a seesaw. So when this part kicks on, it shuts the other part down. It shuts off dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. When you're under conviction of your conscience, your ability to reason and think is impaired. Keeping a clear conscience keeps your capacities for reason, problem-solving, thinking. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. Why would that be? If you're planning on doing something like, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to figure out how I can sell dope to kids. And you start feeling guilty and your conscience starts weighing on you, your plan will be not as efficient. (laughs) You won't plan as well. Okay. That explains all criminal behavior. <laughs> there you go. They get caught. They almost always get caught, except the sociopaths. Yeah. Because yeah. their consciences don't work well. Okay? God wants us to get caught in evil doing so that we can be brought to conviction and repent. He doesn't want us to persist in it. It's destructive for us and for others as well. So their clear conscience, I think, was important. Bottom pink section asks about have we been faithful? Let me ask you can we be faithful? to God's kingdom if we are promoting a Babylonian view of God. Get your mind around that. Can you promote a Babylonian view of God while worshiping on the seventh-day Sabbath? Yes. Yes. Many Adventists don't know this. They think if I'm on the right day, then I can't be promoting a Babylonian view of God. But you can be. But see, this comes with maturity. Because you all know when I first started this class here, I was much more um, legalistic in all my thinking. But since coming to the class and understanding what you've been teaching, it's opened my mind in a way that it's never been before. And, 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 and don't you love God more? Well, yeah, not only that, it makes me more determined or convicted to help others understand God more. You know, whereas before, it's like I just went on with what I was taught my whole life. I was taught that it's hard to, it's hard to put away the things that you've been taught your whole life. Very, very difficult. Yes, that's why I have to practice. I have to, I have to well, step back. I have to rethink. Right. And that's why coming to something like this that opens an understanding in a different way, it just makes you want to tell people, hey, we were on the wrong path. See, the imperial human law construct of imposed rules and imposed punishments, the Babylonian view, puts rules over principles. And that's what we've done. And this causes internal conflict. It focuses on deeds rather than motives of heart. It focuses on legal accounting rather than restoration of minds and characters to be like Christ. Examples. Let me give you some examples. Keeping Sabbath in such a way that it destroys love and trust, i.e. wanting to crucify Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Remember this? I'm not making this up. They were keeping the Sabbath, but they were doing it in such a way they wanted to crucify the creator of the Sabbath. That's rules over principles. Do you see that? How about telling an adolescent girl who came to Vespers that because she was wearing pants, she could not stay in worship. She had to go put on a dress or a skirt. Oh, some of you are shaking your head. Do you think I made this up? No, this is absolutely not. That's what we shake our heads about. We're done. Think about that. An adolescent girl comes to a Vespers program to hear about Jesus, and she's told she can't hear about Jesus because she's wearing pants. Do we see a problem with that? Yes. This is a true story also. God goes to a seven-day Adventist church, invited by a pastor and the pastor's wife. He knows some people there that know him, has a criminal record, 
20 plus years. One of the individuals knows him, calls the police, takes pictures of him unknowingly, calls the police, the guy gets arrested, go through court for a whole year. According to Seven Day Adventist, his crime is not, his crime was so bad that God doesn't forgive it. That God has to keep punishing him for what he'd done 20 something years ago. And let, let, let's take now some Bible, let's put some wisdom to what you just described. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For the same measure you judge others, it will be used against you. Why? So these people who are judging the person you described, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, the good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, the evil man brings forth evil, the evil stored up in him, the musician brings forth music out of the music stored up in him, the mathematician brings forth math. Out of the... So what's happening, if you're putting these pieces together, is that the people who took this position that God is judgmental, God is unforgiving, God requires ongoing punishment, they're actually revealing their own character. They're revealing their own selfishness, their own heart. And that's why they will be judged that way because they will be diagnosed to be, you're judgmental, you're hard-hearted, you're mean-spirited, you're unforgiving. That's who you are. That's why they get judged that way. So this person who underwent this experience, as sad and painful it might have been for them, with discernment, they're going to realize, wow, just like they were, they were mean to Jesus, just like they, they spit on him and rejected him, they're only revealing the hardness of their own hearts. That's really sad for them. And we shake the dust off our feet, as Jesus said, if they reject you, you shake the dust off your feet, meaning you shake off the bitterness, you shake off the resentment. You don't carry that with you and let it be a burden in your heart. And you move on to other places where you can fulfill God's purpose. So thanks for that. How about this? A university student gets kicked out of class and called out in public for wearing some study rings at a Christian university. Or how about refusing to allow students who value the picture of God that we share to get their worship credits? How about telling a high school students at a Christian high school that a teen who committed suicide is going to go to hell and cannot be saved? I didn't make this. This, this last one happened in the last six months. Yep. This is what happens when you put rules over principles. You hurt people and you don't do God's service. So as we talked about, the Christian church across the landscape of Christianity, according to what we've read in the scriptures and other places, has been captive to the intoxicating views of Babylon, the the views of Marduk and Baal. And we today are to be the, the Elijah people to give the true message that God is not like that. He doesn't operate that way, and his methods aren't like that. And calling them back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, the creator God worship. Monday's lesson. First paragraph, all over the world, Daniel 2 has helped untold numbers of people come to believe in the God of the Bible. It provides powerful rational evidence, not only for the existence of God, but for his foreknowledge. Indeed, it is the revelation that the chapter provides of God's foreknowledge that presents evidence for God's existence. Does God have real foreknowledge? Can God know a human being's specific choices before the human being makes them? Or does God simply know the possible choices that the person might make, the infinite number of possible choices, but he doesn't know the specific choice he will make until he makes it? You say, well, who would come up with something like, it's actually called open theism. It's a big divide in Christianity. Many, many intelligent people are promoting this idea that God doesn't actually know your choices. He just knows the possible choices until you make the choice. It's because they conceive in their conception of reality, they think that if God knows your choice before you make it, then you are no longer free to make that choice, that you are predetermined and predestined and pre-programmed like a computer, that you will make that choice because God knows you're going to make it, so you're programmed to make it, you're no longer free. That's their view. The various views that I've read about uh, this state that God can know what He will do before he does it, but he cannot know what other intelligent beings will do before they do it. And if he does, then they're just robots. They're not free. This is the view that is taken. Thus, those people take this view, have no problem with Christ choosing to go through the cross because that's what he was going to do. They also have no problem with God in the chapter we're reading about with the nations because he's working behind the scenes to set up and collapse nation states. That's what he's doing to bring nations up and bring nations down. But it's still not the individual choices of people. Now, I understand the concern 
of those who take the position. I want you to understand their concern. They have a good heart and a good desire. Their concern is that, that they want to protect the character of God who's love. They want to promote the principles of God's kingdom, which are freedom. And love cannot exist in an atmosphere of freedom. And thus they conclude that if God knows our choices before we make them, that in some way that knowledge undermines our freedom to make it, and thus it destroys love, thus it undermines God's character. This is their underlying motive for taking this position, to keep God in the best light possible. I empathize with their desire and their motive. The problem is they have two errors that they have not ejected from their thinking that cause their conclusion. The first error is that they have equated foreknowledge with causality. Because they don't understand the actual causal action is the choice of the sentient being, not God's foreknowledge of the choice. They have equated God's foreknowledge with causing the choice. Rather than God simply knows that your action will cause the choice. You will choose it. He won't. They, 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 they mix those. Second, they've ignored abundant evidence that explicitly demonstrates God does have specific foreknowledge of individual human choices before those choices are made. And I'm going to give you a list of those examples. Here's a list of the examples. Noah and the ark. If you believe the invitation, 120 years of preaching, was genuine and anybody could actually get on the ark, was it genuine or was it a fraud? If it was genuine and God didn't know who would choose and who wouldn't, why didn't they build a fleet of arks? Why'd they build just one? Either he wasn't genuine and nobody was really getting on except the eight, it was all a fraud, or he knew nobody but the eight was going to get on. Second, Joseph's dream about his brothers bowing down to him. How did God know that the brothers would choose to bow down? They didn't have to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow. That's it. How'd they know this was going to happen? Unless he knew their specific choices before they occurred. How about the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker? How did God know what Pharaoh would choose to do with each of those before Pharaoh chose to do it? These are specific actions taken by a specific human being that you had specific foreknowledge of. Not possible choices. How about Isaiah 43.13? This is uh, God speaking. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for price or reward, says the Almighty. How did God know 150 years before Cyrus was born, what Cyrus would choose to do. Psalms 22:18. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. How did God know hundreds of years before that the soldiers would not tear the garment, that they would cast lots? This was specific choice by specific people to take a specific action at a specific time. How could God know that if he doesn't have foreknowledge? How did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him and accurately predicted it before it happened? How did Jesus know that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crows if he doesn't have foreknowledge? This is a specific choice on Peter's part. Any evidence-based thinker cannot conclude that God doesn't know our choices before we make them. If you're an evidence-based thinker. You have to deny so much biblical evidence, you have to discount it, you have to reinterpret it. Well, those were written afterwards, and they just wrote that in. He didn't really know, but they make it wrote it like he knew. And the evidence is clear as far as I'm concerned. God does know our choices before we make them. And the amazing, awesome, when you really get your mind about it, and beautiful thing is that even though he knows, we are still free to make them. Look at Judas. Did Jesus treat Judas differently from the other 11 with that foreknowledge that he knew what Judas was going to do. See, the beautiful thing is, even though God knows, he doesn't use the knowledge to treat you in any other way than his perfect, righteous love. That's how he'll always treat you. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is no, no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times Things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Well, here's a historical quote out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. He that rules in the heavens is the one who sees the end from the beginning. The one before whom the mysteries of the past, 
and future are alike outspread. If we believe that God has the past and the future spread out before him equally, doesn't that mean he knows the details of future choices as accurately as we know the history of recorded choices in the past? Yes, he does. Is anybody uncomfortable with that? Ultimately, I think it really goes back to you trust God and you have a character that you can trust with the knowledge. Yes. But it really comes into play when people think, in, since God knows the future, and he knew what we would choose, yep. the evil instead of the good, and he knew what Satan would do, Yep. why would he have created Satan? <laughs> this is straightforward and easy answer. Come on, what's the answer? It's so obvious. What kind of God would he be if he didn't? Would he still be the God that he that we've just described, a God that gives genuine freedom, a God where love really exists, a God where sentient beings are truly free, if he never created Satan? We might not know it, but w- what kind of being would he be to do it? What kind of being would he be? See, if God actually... And God could have even let Lucifer live to a period of time, and he could have then wiped him out, and he could have wiped the memory of him out. But if he never created him to begin with, yep. why would that make him a bad God by just not creating him to begin with? So at that point in time, then he doesn't leave his intelligent beings truly free. He only leaves ones free who he foreknows will stay loyal to him. The rest of them don't actually have freedom, so he's manipulating behind the scenes a pretext. He's not a God that's truly trustworthy. He's a manipulating God. Okay, well, think about it. I think that's a mystery we won't know about until we get to heaven. I think you can spend some time. Others would argue over the eons and eons of time, if it wasn't Lucifer, then some other being with a different name would have stood up and asked the same questions and raised the same issues. A lot of time on that, trust me. Okay. So I don't have a problem with it because it's only confirming the fact that that Lucifer came into being and he, he rebelled. His rebellion is confirming evidence that God does not use his power to force his way, that we have real freedom. If God were the type of being that Satan alleges he is, then number one, Lucifer could have never rebelled. He would have been restrained or or uh, snuffed out or never created. There would have never been a rebellion. And then that would really be more evidence that we are not truly free. The fact that there was rebellion and God didn't use his power to stop it but left his sentient beings free really confirms love and freedom. But if... The very idea of rebellion is sin. No, the idea of rebellion is not sin. But in your mind, how could there have been a rebellion when that never existed? How can somebody think of something that never existed? So that question is called the mystery of iniquity. There is no rational reason for, there's no justification for it. There's no reason for it. It's called the mystery. You can't explain it logically or rationally. It makes no sense, but it still happened. And it happened because of the freedom of a sentient being to do it. And the only way God could prevent it, it would have been taking freedom. But if he takes freedom, then he has a different character. He's a character that doesn't actually give freedom. Just like you, you could say, uh, think about your character. If you decide to start embezzling from your employer, that changes your character. Your character is not the same anymore. God cannot take the action and still have the character that we know. I'm wondering whether you agree that the freedom of choice is a mystery I mean, my training is in physics, and you tend to think of causality, and you could ask, why did someone choose a particular way? Well, if you can say, these are all the reasons, this is what caused them to choose uh, you know, their environment and their physics and their chemistry, then it seems like then you're saying their choice wasn't really free. So anyway... That argument that people put forward historically is a reductionistic thought, and actually quantum mechanics and quantum understanding of how our brain works refutes that idea. We are not relegated to make certain choices because of certain brain chemistry. It's not neurobiologic or genetically pre-programmed. The way our brains actually work, you actually do have freedom, and it's your choices that actually change the physiology. It's not the physiology that makes the choices. Well, I've studied quantum mechanics, and the, when, when a wave function, you do a measurement, and it goes one way or the other, it's... Uh, a, a random 
choice based on the probability distribution function. And Not in the way the brain works, no. The way the brain works is that you have electron clouds uh, that are entangled in your, in your microtubules, and it is your actual thought and choice. And when you make the choice, the electron clouds collapse and cause conformation change in the microtubules, and it's your choice that causes the change, not the electrons causing the choice. It's just the opposite. Just the same, as you know in the experiments with quantum mechanics, when they look at the photon, whether it's going to be a particle or whether it's going to be a wave, it's all about the observer. If the observer measures it, then it, then it, then it, uh, it, it the, uh, the action of the observer determines which way it goes. But it remains in a position of uncertainty until it's acted upon by the external observer. The action of the choice of the observer determines the outcome, not the actual particle itself. Interesting. Okay. Yes. All right. He... God created Lucifer, just like he created the other angels. Yes. He created Adam and Eve. Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay, they could have not chosen to sin, but yes. they made a choice. Yes, so. yes. So. And that choice changed them. He knew that. Yes. That they would, but yet he still created them. Yes, because of his character. Because of his Because of his character. And many of you have had the same circumstance. You may know that an individual outcome is going to happen with another person, and, but the only way you can stop it was to be, do something that would go against your own character. It would not, and you won't do it. You'll leave them free, whether it's a child or a coworker or some other person. You'll leave them free to suffer the consequence because it's the only way they'll ultimately learn. Let me, let me read to you. I'm going to give you two quotes to end this with. This is out of uh, the book Servant God, written by Greg. Uh, this chapter was written by Greg Boyd. Did you know it's like uh, multiple authors in the, in the book? This was written by Greg Boyd, Servant God, kind of putting uh, together this idea of God's methods and so forth. It says, the unique way Jesus was a social spiritual revolutionary, we see, was rooted in his um, preserving the contrast between the kingdom he came to establish and the reigning kingdoms of the world. To appreciate fully the importance of Jesus' unique way of revolting, we have to fully appreciate how absolute is the contrast. This contrast was put on center stage when Jesus was on trial. Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews, to which Jesus replied, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But Jesus, inf Jesus informed Pilate that the domain over which he was a king was nothing like the power over governments of the world. It was on a completely different plane and from another place. And then, most significantly, he substantiated his claim by drawing Pilate's attention to the fact his servants were not fighting in his defense. The most fundamental feature of earthly governments is that they are willing to use whatever force is necessary to protect and advance their self-interest. As Jack Ellul uh, uh, insightfully argued, Violence is intrinsic to all power over systems. Governments, states, and nations cannot exist in this fallen world without the use of violence. Any government that tried to bless, to love, and serve uh, threatening enemies rather than to retaliate against them would not survive long. This is precisely why Jesus appealed to the absence of violence among those who were citizens of his kingdom as proof that his kingdom was completely different from the kingdoms of the world. Rather than using a sword against enemies to defend and advance his, its cause, the kingdom that is not of this world relies on self-sacrificial love to advance its cause. That was Greg Boyd. Now here's the last quote. This is from Desire of Ages, page 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was to be over, was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love. The presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given to, for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. You see, what God wants from us, he doesn't want simple obedience of a well-trained dog. He wants your love. He wants your trust. He wants your loyalty. He wants your understanding. And he wants your friendship. And you cannot get any of those things by programming them into a computer. Nor can you get those things by threatening to kill people who don't love 
trust, understand, are loyal, and are friends. You cannot get friendship by threatening to kill people if they're not your friend. Thus, the only way for God to put things on an eternal basis of his security was to reveal in sharp contrast the two totally antagonistic methods, truth and love and freedom versus lies, coercion, and compelling power. The governments of the world are beastly because they will use coercive power. And I didn't get into it, but uh, in the lesson it goes further and asks the question. And as we look at the end time, preparing for the end time, how many Christian uh, eschatological theologies or end time theologies teach that we're looking for a savior to come back with a rod of iron to use power to punish the people who don't love him? That's beastly. That's Satan's view of God. That is not the view that Jesus revealed. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not as Satan has alleged that you are. You are so much more awesome and beautiful and incredible. You're the creator God who is, is love and character and, and is truth personified and, is, and grants real freedom. We ask now that your spirit of truth and love will be poured out into our hearts and minds. Connect the dots in our understanding. Transform our hearts that we can live like Christ and reveal you to this world. And that the, the distortion and the darkness prevailing so many minds might be broken up and that the light can shine in and the world will be prepared to meet you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.